This is an ABC podcast. Early in the spring of 1845, a young man borrowed an axe and went down to the woods just outside Concord in Massachusetts. And he began cutting down some young pine trees in just the spot where he intended to build a house. It was the beginning of a two-year experiment in forest life which eventually inspired one of the great classics of American literature, Walden, or Life in the Woods, by Henry David Thoreau. I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately, to front only the essential facts of life and see if I could not learn what it had to teach and not, when I came to die, discover that I had not lived. I did not wish to live what was not life. Living is so dear. Nor did I wish to practice resignation, unless it was quite necessary. I wanted to live deep and suck out all the marrow of life. Hello, I'm Meredith Lake, and it's great to be with you for Soul Search on RN. Today, we're heading into the woods for a fresh look at Thoreau, the 19th century philosopher-poet whose own search for a life lived deep inspired countless others, from the nature writer Rachel Carson to novelist Lev Tolstoy to political activists including Gandhi and Martin Luther King. So what was Thoreau's vision of the good life and of the just society? Alder Balthrop Lewis is a research fellow in the Institute for Religion and Critical Inquiry at the Australian Catholic University in Melbourne. Alder has a PhD in religion from Princeton University and her new book is being hailed as a once-in-a-generation interpretation of Thoreau. Alda, welcome to Soul Search. Thanks so much for having me. I believe you've been to Walden Woods. Could you describe the landscape? What's it like? Yeah, it's a really beautiful place. The first time I went there, so I'm from the southern United States, not the northeast in Massachusetts, and I actually didn't go there until after I finished writing this work that we're talking about. And the first time I got there, people say that he went to a pond and he called it a pond. But the first time I arrived, I said, where we, where I come from, we call this a lake because it's just a really stunning location. It's a sort of tucked away beneath some beautiful low hills. And now, of course, it's a site where many people go to try to experience something of what they learned about in his book. And uh, in that way, a kind of a pilgrimage site. Was it a pilgrimage for you, what was your relationship to this place, having spent years really thinking about Thoreau and particularly this period of his life where he lived in the woods? Yeah, I was a little bit apprehensive, actually, to to find out what it what it looked like. Um, you know, when you read a book and all the characters live in your imagination and then there's a movie and the difference between the movie and the book is sometimes unsettling. So I was nervous about that going, but I actually, I went with a good friend who actually at the time was suffering from brain cancer. And so in a way it was something we could do together before he died. That was a way of asking, I think it's hard, it's hard to, it's hard to describe now, but I think he and I were asking, what are our lives for, given how short they sometimes are? And so I can't, I can't think about going to that place myself without thinking about him and the incredible life he lived and, and just how short it was. Thoreau's own life was also too short. He was working on 
a really interesting, what would have been another great book, I think, about Indigenous life in North America. And a person wonders if his own life hadn't been cut so short, how he might have written about that in ways um, European Americans might have learned from. Henry David Thoreau passed nearly all his short life in one particular part of the New England region, the area around Concord, Massachusetts, about 30 kilometres northwest of Boston. Thoreau was born in Concord in 1817, and he died there 44 years later of tuberculosis. His many friends in that town included the essayist Ralph Waldo Emerson and the teacher and reformer Amos Bronson Alcott, whose daughter, Louisa May, famously wrote Little Women. Thoreau was part of a writerly community that's had a huge influence, and not only in America. Yet so much of his image, at least in popular terms, is of a young man venturing forth into the wilderness, a rugged, solitary man embracing nature. So why do we imagine Thoreau that way? I think it's such a good question. Why do we imagine him like that? I think part of the reason we imagine him like that is that he, like many of us, had a a question ongoing in his own life about what the relationship between solitude and society ought to be in it. So I think for him, there was a real question that going to the woods was aimed at thinking about how, especially given his political convictions, he was an active abolitionist working against um, slavery and for black freedom and also really troubled by America's war on Mexico, which he called robbery, and also labor justice in the North. He worried that industrialization and the, the kinds of work that it led to were harming people. So anyway, these political views that he had, he was caught up in a kind of, in a community that was reformist, that wanted to find a way beyond the unjust politics they were worried about. But he found that experience, being caught up in that community, sometimes challenging, as many of us do, I think. And so there's a certain way in which going to the woods was was trying to work out an answer to the question of how to fit together himself and the community that he belonged to. So there are places, for instance, in Walden, where where he he seems to be this kind of rugged individualist. And some of the work of my book is to read those sites in the text alongside other sites where he describes the community that he joined when he went to the woods, the members who belonged there, and how he really had this view that that anywhere can be the center of a society. One of the reasons we read him as an individualist is that we erase the members of the community that he joined. So that's one of the aims of the book, is to try to undo some of the erasures that interpretations of Walden have sometimes conducted. I'm hearing images of Thoreau here that, I I guess for me certainly, haven't always coexisted in my own head you know, a young man out in the woods. But as you've already begun to sketch, he has another whole side to him that I have to admit I was barely aware of. As an abolitionist, as um, a political activist, 
very, very influential, actually, in in his articulation of uh, civil disobedience. Could you say a little bit more about that side of him and what his influence in that sphere has been? Sure. So Thoreau's reception has come through two of his most famous works. On the one hand, we have Walden, which is about this period of two years that he spent living in the woods outside of Concord. And on the other hand, he wrote an essay also during that time called Civil Disobedience, which was about a night he spent in jail for not paying taxes in resistance to the war on Mexico. And that essay in which he said basically that you shouldn't follow unjust laws was really important to Gandhi's development of Satyagraha in the um, uh, movement for Indian Home Rule. And then also to Martin Luther King Jr. and his development of Gandhi's method of nonviolence for the civil rights movement in the United States. So this tradition of nonviolence that runs through 20th century liberationist movements um, has some of its inspiration from this essay called Civil Disobedience that Thoreau wrote. And he and his whole community, so his family members, his sister, his, his friends in Concord, were all really invested in the politics against slavery. Thoreau actually coined the term civil disobedience in the essay that Alder mentioned there, first published in 1848. Martin Luther King Jr. read it as a college student many decades later, saying, I became convinced then that non-cooperation with evil is as much a moral obligation as is cooperation with good. Here's a section of what Thoreau wrote. If the injustice is part of the necessary friction of the machine of government, let it go, let it go. Perchance it will wear smooth. Certainly the machine will wear out. If the injustice has a spring, or a pulley, or a rope, or a crank exclusively for itself, then perhaps you may consider whether the remedy will not be worse than the evil. But if it is of such a nature that it requires you to be the agent of injustice to another, then, I say, break the law. Let your life be a counter-friction to stop the machine. What I have to do is to see, at any rate, that I do not lend myself to the wrong which I condemn. Civil Disobedience by Henry David Thoreau. On Radio National and by podcast, you're listening to Soul Search. Today, the writing and the politics of Henry David Thoreau. I'm Meredith Lake, and I'm here with Dr. Alder Balthrop-Lewis, who's written a major new book about the 19th century philosopher-poet. Alder sees a connection between Thoreau's politics, his pursuit of justice, and his famous experiment living the simple life in the woods. So let's turn to Walden now, Thoreau's most famous book. I can't help but love it. So it's a big book and it starts with a long chapter that when you teach it to students, they find incredibly boring. So it starts with a chapter about economy in which he describes the economy he saw around him in Concord, the difficult lives people were trying to eke out in a difficult economy. He graduated from college during a financial crisis. And so he was worried about how to live in this economic context. A lot of that chapter is sort of motivating, in my view, the rest of the book. So he's he's trying to say, in this kind of situation, 
where our economic lives are so hard and we're driven by the forms of economy in which we are caught up to what he sometimes calls slave driving of ourselves. How can we find practices that can sustain a different way of thinking about what our time is and how to spend it. And spend it, I say, with like a lot of consciousness that it's an economic metaphor. He's He uses throughout this whole first chapter a lot of these, what has developed in our language as an analogy between time and money. And he's trying in a lot of ways to undo that analogy. So he's trying to live on a different kind of time that can see it as sacred rather than for spending um, in an economic sense. And then the whole rest of the book is a description of what the life was that he found when he tried to renounce that vision of what time is for. So there are some really beautiful passages about sitting in the doorway and having the morning come and the evening come and nothing really happens. He says, my days were not days of the week, nor were they minced into hours and fretted by the ticking of a clock. This was sheer idleness to my fellow men, no doubt. But if the birds and flowers had tried me by their standard, I should not have been found wanting. So so the rest of the book is with chapters entitled things like Sounds and Winter Visitors, uh, describes the life that, that he lived in these two years when he was working on finishing his first book and then writing the material that became this second book. He didn't finish this book in the woods. He spent about 10 years afterwards revising the material he developed there. But those passages came from these days that he spent living in the woods and just what he saw there, what he paid attention to when he found ways to spend his time differently in a less financialized way, let's say. Reading Walden, there are some really wonderful descriptions of, well, I don't want to say what he did with his time because so much of it is about attending rather than instrumentalizing the time mm. and the space that he opts for as as he turns his back to some extent on on the village and embraces life in the woods. Could you just give us a little bit of a sketch of some of the things he did pursue? I mean, what what yeah. did he fill his days with apart from writing? Yeah, so I'm really interested in this partly because um, one of the main topics of the book is this idea about asceticism. And so I try to to describe what practices he took up. So when we become ascetics, and there's, there's a certain sense in which we renounce some things. But as I argue in the book, the, that's often for the sake of the things that we take up. And I describe there that he takes up all kinds of practices. Some of them are negative, so renunciation. Some of them are positive. They're really wide-ranging, and they include things like that we might take as typical ascetic gestures, including moderation in clothing, shelter, and food. So he's, there's a sense in which he's trying to see like how little he can get by on of the basic necessities. But they also include these positive practices like hospitality, inviting friends over. Housework, he describes the way in which in this frame of mind, housework became a pleasant pastime. He cultivates beans and other foods. He bathes in the pond. He calls this a religious exercise and says it's the best thing that he did. He reads, writes, sits, rows in a boat on the pond. He liked to build boats and be on the water. 
<laughs> he went fishing quite a lot, but he had really complicated feelings about eating other creatures. And he says about his fishing that if he were really good, he would give it up. He likes to look at things. So he lies on his belly and peers through the ice when it's frozen over in the winter. He walks a lot and at great length. He goes back to Concord every other day. So gossiping is one of the things he does while he's living in the woods, gossiping in town, uh, visiting <laughs> neighbors. So he plays the flute. He likes to keep appointments with trees. Uh, he's doing lots of stuff while he's out there in the woods. That is a lovely, a lovely passage in Walden where he talks about one of these long walks, even during the winter, you know, through really quite, quite deep snow, where he says, no weather interfered fatally with my walks or rather my going abroad, for I frequently tramped eight or 10 miles through the deepest snow to keep an appointment with a beech tree or a yellow birch or an old acquaintance among the pines. I mean, this idea of you know, keeping an appointment with a tree in the middle of, a, of the snow. In a way, what what has he gone to the woods for? You know, fishing, growing beans, doing a bit of housework. In a way, that's all stuff, even if you live in a village, maybe you have to do. But keeping an appointment with a tree, there's a different kind of attention that he's attempting to practice here. What What is that? Hmm. I mean, I'm I'm sort of having two responses. One is about what I think is just a really deep question about what it means to keep an appointment with a tree. And another is sort of about the economic practices, labor practices. So I might just start with my response about the labor practices because, you know, one of my own idiosyncrasies is that I'm trying to tie the labor practices to the religious practices in a way to say that for Thoreau, the fact of doing his own labor is part of the spirituality that he describes. So when he goes to keep appointments with trees, as you say, he's cultivating a different kind of attention, one that can acknowledge what's really there in the tree's life and in the ecology that surrounds it as a form of resistance to the financialization, let's just say again, of those places. He wants to acknowledge those trees as members of a society to which he belongs, to which he has responsibilities, from which he receives joy and support. So that's all true. It's also true that his practicing his own labor, I think, is importantly related. And we see this partly through learning more about the history of Walden Woods. So whereas we imagine them as a kind of a lonely wilderness often, he writes in, in Walden about the fact that there had been in the generation before him a community of people who made their lives in the woods. And these were people who had been enslaved and conquered around the time of the American Revolution, before the revolution and around the time of the revolution, they gained freedom and uh, made their way as they could in a community in the woods. Some people uh, remained in service in town who had been enslaved, but these people enacted their own freedom. They left their service roles and they lived in the woods. And so for Thoreau, what it means to do your own labor in the generation after slavery, I mean, enslavers of Concord, 
had been only a generation before. And the reason that they had needed slave labor is that they wanted to build an American politics. So to pursue as uh, the book on this, that's really good. It's called Black Walden by Elise Lemire. And as she says, to pursue gentlemanly ambitions, people like this needed someone to collect the fuel for their family and to grow the food that they would eat. And what the way they achieved that labor was by enslaving others. So for Thoreau, attending to the tree and doing your own labor, they belong together as part of a life that acknowledges with reverence its embeddedness in communities of need and gift and that takes up its own obligations to, as you say, attend, but more than that, to to attend in a way that aims at a kind of just future together. So when we do that for trees, it's important, but just labor is its own way of doing that maybe for our broader political communities. Our whole life is startlingly moral. There is never an instant's truce between virtue and vice. Goodness is the only investment that never fails. In the music of the harp which trembles round the world, it is the insisting on this which thrills us. The harp is the traveling patterer for the universe's insurance company, recommending its laws, and our little goodness is all the assessment that we pay. Though the youth at last grows indifferent, the laws of the universe are not indifferent, but are forever on the side of the most sensitive. From Walden by Henry David Thoreau Chapter Higher Life I found this a really very compelling part of the story of Thoreau at Walden that you you describe in your book, Older, where he's trying to live in a way that is at once a repudiation of the system of slavery that had gone before him and the kind of industrialised capitalism that was encroaching upon his community and finding another way. Is, is that the, the enterprise? It's, it's, it's about not just opting out of something but trying to imagine something different. There's a lot of questions about how to do that and whether he did. And of course, many of our complicities run so deep that we can't renounce them entirely. But I do think that in a sense, he called it an experiment. He went to the woods for a couple of years as an experiment to see what would happen. And and I think his question was, what would our lives look like if we, if we renounced unjust labor and what he found was that he, for him, at least, it, it was a life that actually led to really, to, to what I describe in the book as delight. So so he finds that this form of life leads him into appreciation for the, for the true goods that he finds around him. And in that way, it's not just an opting out. No, it's a, an aim to, to try to imagine a new way of life. It's a really hard thing to do, and and we we're all trying all the time. I think. I mean, I'm wary of Thoreau's influence 
on, for instance, the environmental movement has to some extent been actually, in fact, apolitical in that people have sometimes taken his example to mean that we should, you know, reduce our carbon footprint and give up eating meat. And those things are really important. But I think the current environmental movement, when it's successful, is less and less about doctrines of nature and sort of what we think about trees, vital as those are, and more and more about achieving the political power together that's required to push back against the accumulation of capital and exploitation by industry. And so individual conversion is important, and how we live our days helps us become the kind of people we need to be. But so many of us already care about living in peace with nature. And what we need to do is find ways to take back control of our government so that we can protect a, a, a livable future. And so I'm, I'm wary of taking him as an example on the one hand, but I do think he's an example of something that we don't often take him to be an example of, which is this hope for a just economy. And that's what I'm hoping for, too. A just economy, a work of hope, it's true, in the world we find ourselves in now. You're Thinking Bigger with RN and via podcast. I'm Meredith Lake, with you for Soul Search. And I'm with Alder Balthrop Lewis today from the Institute for Religion and Critical Inquiry at the Australian Catholic University. Alder says that Thoreau's two years in Walden Woods wasn't an experiment in individualism so much as a search for a just way of living a new kind of society. And she's not the only one who sees Thoreau in social terms as a man with moral concerns about the capitalist economy taking shape around him. Laura Dasso-Walls is a professor of English at the University of Notre Dame in Indiana. She wrote a landmark biography of Thoreau published in 2017, the bicentenary of Thoreau's birth. Laura joined RN's Geraldine Duke to talk about it. The common thought about Thoreau, and I think one reason why it seemed that he perhaps wasn't as relevant or wouldn't speak to us as much in our time, is that he was something of a hermit in the wilderness and a misanthrope and really had very little to say to a very complex society such as ours. And one of the features of his life that I became very aware of in doing my earlier work on Thoreau is how deeply embedded he was in his community, even from before the time that he went to Walden Pond. So that the thought that he was somehow out in the fringes or out in the wilderness with very little to offer us today, the more I knew about him and his time, the more I thought he actually is in a moment of the birth of our own time. And as he watched it taking shape around him, on the contrary, he had a great deal to say to us in our moment. What I see from is that people have uh, characterised him as turning to nature, as, as going and living by Walden Pond and so on, whereas you suggest that what he actually turned to was the commons, spaces yes. that back then were still open to everyone, woods, fields, hilltops, ponds, blueberry thickets, meadows and so on, and that in, which is quite a distinction, I think. And I think it's not that nature drops out of his vocabulary. Uh, the turn toward nature is one of the features that distinguishes him from some of his uh, fellow writers. 
So that's his hallmark. But the way he turns to nature and what nature means to him, at a certain point in reading, especially his journals, it occurred to me that part of what drives him is watching the commons become privatized. So one of the earliest moments that he sounds a very strong environmental note is when he goes to his other favorite pond in his neighborhood, White Pond. And since he's been there last, private landowners have cut down all the trees around what he thought of was the gem of Concord. And the thought that private landowners would take upon themselves um, the right to destroy this environment that was enjoyed by everyone really set him thinking about what it was that was happening to the landscape around him. And once he started asking, why is this happening? What are the causes? What could we do about it? The circle of thinking starts to get wider and wider until very soon he is thinking very much in terms of commons. So the other example is somewhat later in life. He is leading the neighborhood children every year um, on grand huckleberry parties. And of course, huckleberry picking, these are blueberries, by the way. Mm -hmm. um, so this is now, of course, a big industry. But he would be scouting the best huckleberry patches ahead of time. And late in the 1850s, he goes to scout for this year's grand huckleberry party and discovers that the favorite patches are um, fenced off with no trespassing signs. And these are truly commons in the sense that these were spaces that the entirety of the population would turn to and use for all sorts of purposes. You listed a few. And the thought that someone could fence them and post them no trespassing really seemed to him to be an assault mm -hmm. on the community as a whole and some of the deepest values um, that would sustain that community. So he really starts to broaden the concept and does turn towards language of the commons. So was he an angry man? Well, he was certainly angry as a young man. <laughs> and when he goes to Walden, and this is very obvious in the first chapter, which is titled Economy, what angers him is what is the subject of that chapter. And I think that tone of anger really throws people off. But one way in, perhaps, is to think of him, first of all, as angry, not necessarily at us personally, which some readers take it to be that, but at the society that, in effect, have, has moved him away from thinking how to realize his best self, how to um, find a position in the world where his best self can be, well, vocation, can uh, get I, a job, to I, be employed. Yeah, I suppose I ask that because, in a way, what you're saying is it's a real critique of capitalism, as I hear you say well, it, and I just wonder how he'd be received these days if he did that. <laughs> well, I think... Part of what's interesting is that he does talk about capitalism, and yet he is not, the form of his anger is not one that wants to take down the system. And there were people who were sort of pre-Marxists who literally were taking that on, and he knew some of them. Instead, he wants to swerve the system, and this makes him very attractive to Americans. So the whole point is a kind of higher entrepreneurship, right? A higher profit. Yeah, but he had that so, great line, sorry, in so many lines, trade curses, everything it handles. Boy, oh, yes. that's hardly, yes. you know, the business of America is business. That's not likely to get a lot of uh, applauded, so I wouldn't have thought. 
Well, yes, once you turn life into money and say the real goal is simply to make money, that to him is an astonishing uh, conclusion and very life-defeating. It's one of the sources of the despair that he says he goes to Walden not to cultivate despair. The mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. Right. So, you know, wake up. This is the only life we'll have, and um, in reducing it to profit, we're reducing our own potential, but also the, our interrelations with each other. You do say that, and you, you again characterise the, the writer's retreat as it's been, you know, that it was this great retreat from the world, whereas you see it as him seeking a public stage on which he could dramatise his one-person revolution in consciousness, making his protest a form of mm-hmm. performance art, which is a beautiful moment. And I just have to ask you a final question about his death. He was only 44 when he died of TB, because I right. love this scene. When asked by his aunt if he'd made his peace with God, he answered pleasantly, you write, I didn't know we had ever quarrelled, Aunt. <laughs> yes, was yes. He at, was he at peace, do you think, with his life? Astonishingly enough, he was. And I say astonishingly because I am not. I know what he left unfinished. I think he really believed and knew that his words would live on and that he had, in effect, put aside work that would reach the future and find hears today and instruct us as he felt that he could instruct the people around him. Laura Dasso-Walls, Professor of English at the University of Notre Dame and biographer of Henry David Thoreau. She was speaking there to RN's Geraldine Duke back in 2017 and you'll find a link to that full conversation on the Soul Search website. I'm Meredith Lake, and I'm keen to run a bit further, not just with the critique of capitalism, but with the question of Thoreau's spirituality. Alder Balthrop Lewis is the author of Thoreau's Religion, published very recently by Cambridge University Press. She sees Thoreau as a political ascetic, a radical whose life drew something from the traditions and practices of monks. Here's Alder now, explaining what she means by asceticism. So most people's first thought, I think, is about religious practices, especially of maybe monks and nuns, whether they're Buddhist or Hindu or Christian or otherwise. These kinds of folks often fast or practice sexual abstinence. And we tend to think of these practices of renunciation that monks do as a kind of asceticism. Of course, the word has a long history in European languages. So it's coming from a Greek word for exercise, which is eschesis. And in ancient Greece, It referred to the exercise of athletes, and it's adopted metaphorically in ancient Greek philosophy to describe spiritual exercises that are pursued by philosophers, sort of on analogy to the exercise of athletes. So in this broad metaphorical sense that the early Greek philosophy gives us, it can be used to describe any form of practice, but it still has these connotations of renunciation. And so when I use it in the book, I'm I'm often using it to allude to the renunciative gesture, but then to also describe forms of positive practice. So as I was talking about when I said what Thoreau does in the woods, I sort of like to think of his bathing in the pond as a form of asceticism because it's a he calls it a religious practice. In fact, he compares the waters of Walden Pond to the sacred water of the Ganges. He also talks in, in Walden about reading the Bhagavad Gita every morning He talks about bathing his intellect, 
in its philosophy. How do you locate him, I guess, in terms of his his religious influences? Yeah, so he's really interested in voluntary poverty. And, and this is, I think, one of the central reasons to take him as an ascetic practitioner, because in a lot of these religious traditions, and even in the philosophical ones, of course, the voluntary poverty is really a key part. And what he says is that the geniuses of voluntary poverty were Chinese, Hindu, Persian, and Greek. And there he, he has in mind texts from all over the world, really, and from, uh, from a really diverse range of philosophers and religious thinkers. Because of my own sort of expertise and because of Thoreau's location in Christian European history that gets taken up in the United States, I focus a a lot in the book on his relationship to Christianity. It's not because it's the only one that is ongoing, but it's because the one I have the most to say about, and, and I think it's really influential in his life. And in my view, it's more influential than some 20th century interpreters have really made space for. So he's often taken to be something like post-Christian because people see him as having rejected the church. Mostly he resigned his membership from from the church he had been raised in when he was a young man. And, you know, fair enough. But I think there's a sense in which that decides in advance some theological questions that he was really interested in and trying to work out. And I am interested in pursuing those theological questions rather than than deciding in advance that he's sort of so unorthodox as to not bear the name Christian. I'm interested in in describing a more complicated relationship that he has to the tradition. And this is in part because it seems to me that the book is motivated by his being disgruntled with a sort of popular Christian orientation to what it means to be good, which is, as he describes it in Walden, philanthropy. And he's worried about philanthropists because he thinks they have the wrong sense of what justice requires. He's worried that wealth often is made through exploitation and that giving a little bit of it back to the poor is really not rendering justice because what would be required in order to enact a just economy is not for rich people to give a little bit of their money away, but for the economy in which we live to not exploit people to begin with. And so he's sort of dissenting from some of the main ways of thinking about what Christian goodness requires. And in that sense, he's involved in theological contestation over the significance of the gospel for contemporary life. And in that sense, I read him as a Christian because he's involved in contestation over the significance of the Christian gospel. Perhaps a more typical frame for locating Thoreau has been in relation to transcendentalism. And I wonder if you could comment on that. I mean, even just Concord in Massachusetts is a hub, really, for transcendentalism in the 19th century. He's connected to a network of people who are associated with this movement could you say a little bit about what that was and how you do or don't see Thoreau's place in it? Sure, yeah. It's really important and it's sort of the context for everything that he did. 
there's been a lot of really good work on transcendentalism as a kind of a social movement and the communities that birthed it. But partly because my own interests were in interpreting Walden in a a kind of broader social context, I focus less on transcendentalism in the book. Transcendentalism is kind of an elite radical movement. And these views, for example, about the Christian, the contestation over what Christian theology means for contemporary questions about economy, he has excellent allies in this position. He's not a He's not an outlier, and in fact, he's learning it from the people around him, Orestes Bronson and lots of others. I sort of do draw him to some extent away from that way of telling the history because it often focuses on these elite radicals as the important context. And I am trying to describe Thoreau in the context of industrial labor and the history of enslavement in Concord and Freedom in Walden Woods. And those actors, I think, often get left to the side in in interpreting Walden. I think reading Walden with these very, very local histories in mind helps us see it differently. And perhaps, as I think you're suggesting, it's something to do with grounding the conversation about ideas back in not just a context, but a place and thinking in relation to that place. For sure. And Annie Dillard once wrote, I think it was a master's thesis on Walden, and she said that it was a book about a pond. And I love that way of describing it because there's so many things that you could say it is, right? And for her to just say it's a book about a pond, I think is right in a sense. But I'm trying to say it's a book about a pond and the community that lived around that pond in the generation before Thoreau, and what freedom might mean if we took seriously that he was writing in that place for that place. A book about a pond. What a way to describe Walden. But I think you can see why Thoreau's book has been so influential in American nature writing. This is a delicious evening when the whole body is one sense and imbibes delight through every pore. I go and come with a strange liberty in nature, a part of herself. As I walk along the stony shore of the pond in my shirt sleeves, though it is cool as well as cloudy and windy, and I see nothing special to attract me, all the elements are unusually congenial to me. The bullfrogs trump to usher in the night, and the note of the whippoorwill is borne on the rippling wind from over the water. Sympathy with the fluttering alder and poplar leaves almost takes away my breath. Yet, like the lake, my serenity is rippled but not ruffled. These small waves raised by the evening wind are as remote from storm as the smooth reflecting surface. Though it is now dark, the wind still blows and roars in the wood, the waves still dash, and some creatures lull the rest with their notes. The repose is never complete. The wildest animals do not repose, but seek their prey now. The fox and skunk and rabbit now roam the fields and woods without fear. They are nature's watchmen, links which connect the days of animated life. Walden by Henry David Thoreau. Chapter Solitude. 
Solitude, yes, but in the midst of all that life. Thoreau found a kind of communion in the woods and imagined a new society. For Alder Balthrop Lewis, that's why Thoreau's experiment in Walden Woods still matters now. It gave rise to an idea of justice that goes well beyond rights. It's a vision of justice in which what justice requires is right relationship between us. So some theories of justice try to describe a principle. For example, one really famous one from the 20th century, John Rawls says justice is fairness. And I think Thoreau is doing something that I take to have been important in 20th century feminist philosophy, which is describing justice as as between us rather than a principle that operates over our situation. And this is important because it offers a, a radically sort of exploded idea of, of what social justice then requires. If we think of justice as right relation between us, then who the us is, is, is really important. And that's part of why, as you've just pointed out, the thinking in place part of it is so important. And, and that ends up being part of what keeping the appointments with trees is about. So, so keeping the appointment with the tree in this r- sort of relational explosive account of social justice is a form of justice because it renders to the tree what is due to the tree, which is this form of attention and piety in some sense. So in this, I take the example of those people who enacted their freedom after having been enslaved to be really important to him, in part because his justice is this relational justice And his freedom is this kind where you reject domination. Although reading your book, I was kind of delighted really to find in the preface that you've come to Thoreau and and I guess spending years of your life in dialogue with him, in reflection on him and this experiment in the woods, in, in a sense, not very deliberately. It wasn't the path you initially set out upon. I wonder if you could just say a little bit about where it did start for you, about the places that you first loved, because they were nowhere near Walden Woods, were they? No. I started thinking about these kinds of questions about environmental ethics and about what justice requires in 2010 when Deepwater Horizon, which was an oil rig in the Gulf of Mexico, exploded. I grew up on the Gulf Coast the United States and in Florida. And my family relied on that, on the waters there. My dad was a clam farmer. And when that happened, when Deepwater Horizon exploded and what they called a leak, which was actually a gush, um, went on for months and months, it felt like we were all going to lose the thing that we love the most. And I had been taught to love that place by my parents and my whole family, uh, long generations of people who had, who have loved that place still do. Uh, many of them live there. And I, I started trying to think about what environmental ethics looks like on a local level in that context when 
when people are suffering environmental harm. And I found that that work was really difficult and exciting, but that finishing a book was going to mean I needed to do something less complicated interpersonally, let's say. But I, I still take as my sort of motivation, my connection to that place and, and love for the people and the ecosystems and the, I don't know, it's, it's the place that I love. And also learned from loving a place that part of living a good life is getting to know the place where you are. So now I live in um, Melbourne and I am trying to learn as much as I can about this place and grateful to the long history of care here by Wurundjeri people and go to the Mary Creek when I can and work for an organization that tries to bring communities together to create joyful, connected communities who care for each other and our earth. That's cultivating community in Fitzroy and all over Melbourne. And I, I guess I, it's because I have learned that being connected to the place where you live is sort of part of what it means to be alive. And it's hard work and it brings us together. And I love it. Alda, finally, the other big element apart from place here is a kind of spirituality that might be described as ascetic. Where does the ascetic strand fit in for you? Yeah, I guess part of my instinct about asceticism comes from an interpretation of that Christian tradition that I think Thoreau is drawing on. So he makes jokes, for example, about Abelard, about other um, figures in Christian monastic history, he, he knows that he's playing with it, right? And one of the things I think is that the sort of critique of wealth that Thoreau is involved in, because he thinks that it's sort of a taking what was given by God to all for oneself, that critique of wealth runs right through the Christian spiritual tradition. Their ascetic pr practice has an economic critique at its heart. And you see this in the gospel when Jesus told the rich man, that he would have to sell everything he had in order to inherit eternal life. Mark's gospel tells us that the rich man's face fell and he went away sad. But Jesus told the disciples it would be hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And he finished the speech explaining, many who are first will be last and the last first. And it seems to me that often theological writing about the geniuses of contemplation, whether Thoreau or monastics, um, neglects the social economic and political significance of their poverty. And when we do that, we kind of spiritualize in a bad way the great contemplatives, and we ignore the important economic critique that was so often um, enmeshed in their contemplative practice. So I'm trying in this book, and then also I'm working on a, a new project about Thomas Merton, to, to describe why that, why voluntary poverty, which is so often taken up by people we consider spiritually gifted in some sense, how it's also related to just economy and, and sort of intrinsically so. The Benedictine way of life is, is labor and prayer. And when we focus on the prayer to the exclusion of labor, we forget what a student once pointed out to me in class, which is that the rule of Benedict focused on practices that are necessary for people who are coming from diverse class positions to live together peaceably. This like conversation about economy and what a just economy requires is built into the Christian spiritual tradition. 
Alder Balthrop Lewis is the author of a new book called Thoreau's Religion, Walden Woods, Social Justice and the Politics of Asceticism. She's originally from Florida, but now based in Melbourne as a research fellow in the Institute for Religion and Critical Inquiry at the Australian Catholic University and as a volunteer with a group she mentioned there, Cultivating Community, which works with diverse and low-income communities to care for each other and for the earth. If you'd like to find out more about Henry David Thoreau or get the details of Alder's book, just head to the Soul Search website for all that information. You can listen online too, and of course, subscribe to Soul Search as a podcast. Next time on the show, a descendant of Ghana's Ashanti royal family on some of the long-term legacies of the transatlantic slave trade. In this room would be hundreds of people who've been pulled from all over the West African coastline, but particularly Ghana, and held there until the next vessel was to come. And they had no ability to go out. There was no fresh air and the food would be dropped through a hole in the roof. The sense of the moss on the ceiling of this cave, uh, this dungeon, was still so thick. I remember the tour guide said to me, we have scrubbed and scrubbed and scrubbed this place and yet you can still feel three, four hundred years worth of human torment in this place. I, for one, as someone who has heritage in Ghana, that was a very powerful and sobering moment. You could almost hear those cries still while you were in that place. Jacob Sarkady, who now works for the world's largest anti-slavery organisation. My guest next time on Soul Search, I hope you can join us. For now, thanks to producers Nadiat Elgali and Mariam Shahab, and to the ABC's John Steiner for those absolutely exquisite readings from Henry David Thoreau's Walden. The sound engineer today was Andrei Shabunov. I'm Meredith Lake. Thanks for listening to Soul Search on RN. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.